Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raph. <laughs> oh, no. I, hey, what's I going on? The Raph thing that you hate. Raph, Raph. Who's in the doghouse? Um, how's it going? <laughs> uh, yeah, fine. Uh, watching movies. Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, for those who are not paying attention, uh, which would be like 99.9999% of the world, <laughs> and who might have stumbled on this podcast, uh, we are rebooting it in some manner as an experiment, as a movie review podcast. It's so a pivot. pivot. Yeah, like a startup. We're pivoting. Yeah. We haven't talked about the strategic implications of this pivot at all, (laughs) but I've sort of like thought about them a little bit. I feel like there is, you know what, theoretically, someone could be cynical and be like, ah, that's their play at a wider audience because no one understands art, but everyone understands the movies. But that's not why we're doing it. But what what was that term of a blue water, red water or something? Oh, yeah, totally. That's blue ocean and red ocean. Yeah. Yeah, you would definitely want to like. In, yeah, and so the the yeah, the the the, the landscape of uh, entertainment review podcast is uh, very full. Yeah, exactly. We're entering a red ocean um, as two like underdogs. And today's movie is like, who hasn't talked about that movie? Yeah, so we we debated what we should cover as movies uh, go. It went back and forth, and then you know as we were debating, the Oscars happened, and one of the movies that we had kind of I think we had we had talked about it a little bit won a bunch of Oscars, including Best Picture, um, which was kind of exciting. That movie, of course, is Parasite. Um, and I was already kind of a fan of the director, uh, Bong Joon-ho. Um, and, of course, Raphael hated him. Just <laughs> I don't know. You didn't have an opinion, necessarily. <laughs> no, it, 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 I saw a couple of his movies. But what's interesting is we, we were talking about which movie to review and... I remembered Ed Wood by oh, yeah. Tim Burton, and we were watching it, and I'm like, oh, it's not that good. It's, it's just kind of charming. And they're like, oh, why don't we wa- You choose. It's your turn to choose. And then we talked about 1917. Mm-hmm. This was before the I Oscars. still kind of want to talk about that. And it was kind of, yeah. And so that one is interesting. It's all one shot. And then we're kind of talking about it, and then the Oscars happen, and I never pay attention to the Oscars. The same way, I'm not going to read... Uh, the Michelin guide and make them decide where I go eat or I'm not going to check the Grammys and then be like, Oh, I should listen to Alicia right, Keys. Right. She won a Grammy. Yeah. So that's not how I operate. So the same way I'm like, if you look at the history of the best picture in the Oscars, this seem very mediocre. The movies, I looked at it briefly and it's just, it, it, if you look at the last 20 years at, at the, so there's 20 best picture movies. None of them would be in my top 10. Well, this was like unique. I can't even remember. Wasn't this unique because it was the first time like a non-American yeah. or like, sorry, rather a non-English language non-English yeah, spoken movie, movie one. Yeah. Um, but then. Well, I, I feel like a, that that's a, a, a whole, the American culture is very focused on America and Americans tend to travel within the U.S. and uh, there's the World Series of baseball, and it's only the mm-hmm. U.S. and things like that. Or the same way, uh, Mr. Universe is always from planet Earth. Mr. Universe. So, <laughs> do you know, <laughs> no, yeah, like yeah. It, it, you have these uh, yeah. competitions that are called World or Universe, but they're it's actually just like just in Chicago, local. But <laughs> it's in LA. It's in Los Angeles. Yeah. and so the Oscars mm. are very the Oscars are very U.S. focused, whereas something like the film festival in Venice or Cannes is more world focused. 
It's it's not unheard of that a non-English speaking movie wins in Cannes. Yeah, but I think I or you, non-French books. You might argue film. that it's like Euro focused, like that. You know, there's this European Europe is the center of the world. No, or I th- but d- don't you think that? I, I guess we're very unresearched, but I'm sure there's been movies from Africa and, and South America and Asia that have won awards more in Cannes or mm. Venice than in. Uh, I would say that it, it, it's exactly the same as American football and soccer. There's like American football and there's the Super Bowl and they think it's a big deal because it has 100 million yeah. viewers. And then uh, the rest of the world plays football, like actually the entire rest of the world. And then the viewership on the championship is two, three billion people. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's also like kind of in particular yeah. with this film, it's a bit ironic because I think the film like the themes of the film are themes that i would say historically would have been critical of american capitalism <laughs> kind of thing and like um even if capitalism yeah. is a global phenomenon yeah. this is very much like y- you could replace everyone with like people from malibu and it would make perfect sense kind of thing but i think from what i've heard from friends from korea that the Korea is also a very materialistic, status-aware culture about mm. getting money and getting rich. And yeah, uh, um, yeah, but maybe so I'm just arguing. It, maybe it, it's like relatable to Americans because they're like, "This is the class struggle of America." Where it, it or yeah, it, it. Some director, the director from "Sorry to Bother You," said that in American cinema, class struggle is considered very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to look at poor mm-hmm. people on the big screen. And so the only way that that in mainstream American cinema class struggle is addressed is if it's in a sci-fi or fantasy setting. Yeah. So you have Middle Earth and you have Mordor <laughs> and and then people can sort of stomach it. But a general movie just a bit, I don't know, did you see the Florida project yeah, for yeah, example? Yeah. It's just very painful to watch. You're like oh, it, it like it, you know how a lot of soap operas are about rich yeah. people. Because it's just like you bask in their luxury for the duration and you're watching Gossip Girl right. or The O.C. or right. whatever. And just you get to be rich for half an hour. But I think actually you're making a good point, which is like um, more often in America, actually, it'd be more like La La Land or something like that, where it's like class struggle is recast as from the gutter to fame kind of thing. Like you get, you know, you rags to riches is the is the mythology typically. So it's like, it works out well for the poor yeah, people in the and, end. And, and a happy yeah. ending. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. This, is, this is a film definitely that doesn't have a happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> but but the, the, I think what, what is also relatable is that Bong Joon-ho has a quality of a sort of well-crafted, well, a good acting, well-written, mm-hmm. all the pieces come together at the end. And it, it, it's very... Um, all the aspects of cinema that he's using, the, the dialogue, the acting, the music, the lighting, the architecture, the wardrobe, everything's perfect. So it has that finesse or that finished quality of maybe a mainstream Hollywood movie. Mm. But then there's a twist, a twisted psychology in it that you wouldn't yeah. see in, an, uh, in a mainstream movie. I do think movie. this is like, um, I don't know if this is true from his other films, but in this one in particular, there's a ton, a ton of attention to detail. Like... Even if you pause certain frames, you'll yeah, see like. But maybe to put yeah. it very yeah, but maybe to put it very simply, like a normal Marxist film would be shot on a like they would use a razor phone from the '90s and film like someone in the dark with bad lighting <laughs> and you can't hear the audio. Like I, I'm exaggerating, but it would be like a student film that mm. is unwatchable and the message is important, but you just can't relate. And then, 
Bong Joon Ho uses the whole yeah, capitalist the machine to tell an anti-capitalist. I love that story. actually. It's it, yeah. it's like an argument against Bernie Sanders in a way. In that if Bernie would just brush his hair, <laughs> but I think you know normally normally those codes end up becoming like that's uh, those are codes. He still has for suspicious behavior. Bernie of. still has very white teeth. Oh. He's still American. That he has those big shiny. White yeah, but teeth. imagine Joe Biden, whose teeth are ten times brighter, if he was actually like preaching, <laughs> preaching the gospel of socialism. <laughs> like, why can't socialism be yeah, pa- yeah, like? Because yeah. in Canada, the same thing happens where socialism gets packaged as like roll up your your sleeves, kind of working class. That like you have to come down to some like disheveled look uh, in order to be authentic. And I think it's a authenticity. Yeah, that's that's like the Matrix. Yeah. The Matrix, I always thought about the, the state of... Here we go with politics, but it, well, it, it is fascinating. Over, over but, <laughs> you know, in, in the Matrix, they, they have a pretty chill life and uh, they have their comforts. And then you take the pill and you wake up in real reality and you have to eat this protein porridge and you have to wear a, a sweater with mm-hmm. holes in it and you have to sleep on a, a without a blanket. It, everything's very uncomfortable. So that sort of, if you look behind the veil and see what's really going yeah. on, then uh, you you basically be, have to become a it's monk. It's especially uncomfortable when the white Rastafarian <laughs> twins... <laughs> <laughs> arrive in like the third movie <laughs> you're thinking yeah. like well we'll definitely do a matrix episode yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the trilogy podcast yeah i feel like that's the last yeah those are the movies like just before the current contemporary social uh wokeness there there's there was like the wakowski brothers and people like that were still being heralded as these gods and and the wo- the wokeness yeah. that they were promoting is like what we would now consider like you know yeah like lesson one or something like that like it was so rudimentary compared to yeah I think yeah, um, yeah. how sophisticated the world has become but there there yeah there is it should should we explain the the plot or has everyone seen it's true show? I've been thinking that the whole time as we've been sort of dancing around it but uh, yeah I think we can like uh, so th- here's how this podcast works what we just like destroy any like there's no everything is spoiled right we spoil everything <laughs> so we can we can give yeah, away it, the it, whole it, when you when you were talking well I, I think you were talking about how our audience would respond and I was talking to my sister and she's like oh yeah I listened to the last episode and she listened to uncut gems because she had yeah. seen it. But she didn't listen to the Mandy pod because she hadn't seen it yet. So I think this podcast will have a delay where people be like, oh, I should check that movie and then listen oh. to it. And that's kind of how I look at There's this guy from the BBC, Mark Kermode, and I like his movie yeah. reviews. But I only look at the movie review after I've seen the movie. Or, you know, a big part of movies is maybe after the movie, you go have a coffee with your friends yeah. and discuss the movie and digest it. And so that's how this podcast will function more than... You can't just go into it if you want to see the movie because we'll ruin it. I like that ritual of going for coffee after a movie. I don't know if people do that who watch movies at night, but um, that is that what you do? Well, maybe you have a beer instead of a No, coffee. you know what? I often just go... Well, if you go to yeah. the movies yeah. with friends. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. If you go with friends, which I do yeah. less and less, and I really... I, I got to rekindle that. It's a nice thing. So this is almost like going to the movies with friends. Okay, so we get back to the bar yeah. or yeah. the coffee shop, and we're like, okay, let's recount the story. We've just seen the <laughs> just movie. seen the movie. Yeah. And uh, what did we just see? Well, in, 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 its, in its very, very basic, is like there's a rich family... Um, and there's a poor family, and there's a struggle between them uh, and because they both want the same thing. They want to be rich. 
Um, well, yeah. There's 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 no there's there's no moment where the 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 rich people say, you know what, all this money is is bullshit. We don't. Well, need it kind it. of starts out like we meet this very poor family, and they're literally living um, almost underground, like in a like kind of a basement apartment, not completely underground. And I think that's actually important. Like there's a it's a basement apartment with yeah. like windows near the ceiling so you can see out onto the street but it's like as if the street was at your eye and there's level. pollution and they have to do they have to do gig economy well one of the first scenes is like their apartment they're, they're fumigating outside or something and then like the whole house their whole apartment is just completely opaque with fumigation gas and they're like just hanging out yeah eating and dinner. the dad the dad is like leave the windows open it's a free free bug treatment <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah exactly yeah. um so they're they're in a really rough shape um and then there's this uh a friend of uh the younger boy in the family it's a family that's kind of a nuclear family it's like a husband wife and a daughter and son and the older son uh, his friend, like a uh, like a, a kind of a college friend who's not, uh, but he didn't go to college. Anyway, like a friend of his is, who's in college comes and he brings a gift uh, to the house. He's dressed a little better. He's a bit more educated. And this gift is symbolic. It's this, I didn't really understand or know about this, but it's like, a, what do they call it? A philosopher's rock or something like that, or a scholar's rock. And it, it's like in this really ornate uh, wood case. And they open it up and like, what is this? It's a scholar's rock. And of course, like no one in this family, you know, uh, they all know kind of the meaning of the scholar's rock. I think they'd never seen one before. Can you can you remember in the film? It's like anyway, it's this this artifact from uh, Korean culture that we're not I'm not familiar with, but that is apparently something that people handed down or collected. That was like representative of knowledge and wisdom. And it's. Like, I guess it's, yeah, good luck. good luck. Yeah, exactly. Like, that this will allow you to prosper. And so it's kind of like a provocation in the Isn't film. All, it, it, my, my impression is that any um, any gift in the Asia that's given always means you'll get more money. It's always a coin or uh, this will bring you good luck or this will bring you good fortune. I suppose that's true of gifts everywhere. I've never... I mean, how often do you give a gift that's like, this yeah. will ruin you? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> misfortune yeah, yeah, befall yeah, exactly. you. <laughs> yeah, so it's like yeah, but I I don't know if in in uh, Western culture if we give each other crystals for good luck um, or things like that. Well, or even in European culture. Uh, it's not in European culture though. There's probably stuff like um, giving people. Well, here they're maybe giving chocolates or something like that, or wine, or no, yeah, you're right. That's all consumables. Yeah, yeah but they're not symbolic. Yeah, I'd never, yeah. I'd never come yeah, over yeah. to your house with like a diploma and be like, hang this on your wall and you'll <laughs> it'll bring you good luck. Right? <laughs> yeah, or like a crystal or yeah. like a, a a plant. This is a, you know, in China they have money plants. Like, oh, you, if you put this plant here, money will. Come in Japan, to you. do they give bonsai? Is that like a thing? Get to give or no, they give fruit there. Like, don't they give special fruit? Yeah. Uh, hmm. Interesting yeah, question. Anyway, it, I think this this object is supposed to, is kind of out of fashion now to give as a gift in Korea, and so it's meant to provoke both Korean audiences and North American audiences, as I understand it. And because you're like, what is this thing? What is? It? And uh, it's literally a rock. And the rock throughout this film, it's kind of interesting. Like all of these, um, any object that is introduced is actually, and even any any shot is later important or is kind of reflected. Yeah, that's what I meant with the with the well crafted mm-hmm. aspect. If like like really, if you would go to film school and, and you would have a class about screenplays, this would be an example of like 
all the themes and the motives and <laughs> yeah, the objects yeah, yeah. are there in the beginning and in the end it makes a perfect circle and everything comes together and, yeah it's very yeah. very tight in fact i was watching um some like analysis of the film very quickly um and the even some of the shots where they didn't get the right take they've sandwiched together several takes just to get the a rhythm right and i think if you've seen bong jun ho's other uh films he's really all about rhythm and getting the rhythm of the edits down and almost being like kind of building up like it's a, this this real build up like each kind of shot yeah. is like a beat on the drum and there's a few montages throughout this film that do that even kind of more succinctly um anyway so the the film starts out that way and and his friend comes over and his friend's like hey you could get this job um uh work, teaching english uh to this rich family and he's like, no, I couldn't. I, I haven't gone to college. You have to go to college to to be a tutor. And the friend is like, well, you could pretend. And this is kind of like this is a crucial moment in the film. And apparently, and he and he already mentions that the mom is a little simple minded. She's gullible. Like you, you can you can persuade her yeah. easily. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And he's like, this family, this rich family, the mother would be someone you could take advantage of. Um, anyway, so he. Uh, he he tries it on and he, he they actually he does manage to like lie his way into becoming a tutor and the re- and the rest of the movie is really a story of like the lengths the whole family goes to to become a part uh to get different jobs working for this family and and it's and they it's a big con uh so it's like a classic con artist film yeah it, it yeah so the 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 brother starts teaching english and then he talks to the mom becomes friendly and the mom says oh my son has all these problems and we're looking for an art therapist teacher and then he's like oh my sister i know someone he doesn't say it's his sister but he says i know someone so she comes and then they're like we're looking for a driver they actually frame the other driver to make him look bad and like oh i know a driver Oh, we're looking for a housekeeper. Oh, our housekeeper is great. She's been here even before we lived in this house. Oh, I know someone. And they, they make the housekeeper look bad. Uh, she has terrible allergies, and they trigger those allergies, and then they convince the family that she is sick and that she's going to get them sick. And So there's slowly... That's it gets more and the more first part of elaborate. the movie that feels... Yeah. But but it's the, it's, the, it's the sort of movie where... Uh, you get enthusiastic about the conning. Yeah. You're like on their team and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. get it. It's like, yeah. The, yeah. And everything seems to be headed the right yeah, you're, way. You're rooting for the poor people for sure. You're not, yeah, you're not like, oh, these poor rich people <laughs> being taken advantage of. <laughs> and and it, it seems like the the father is, is uh, sort of aware of a lot of things, but he's too busy to really like bother too much researching his new employees. The father of the rich like family. Normally you would think maybe they yeah, you would think normally maybe he would vet the employees and like <clears throat> ask for references and make sure that it's safe and all these things, but he's just too busy, it seems. He's like, he just tells his wife, you just figure it out. It is really like kind of an old school situation where she's kind of a kept woman and he's earning all the money and is like, you know, so she's like managing the household and he's managing the business kind of thing. So it, I don't know whether... We want to unpack that, but just like your <clears throat> definitely not like my <laughs> my household. <laughs> but um, but I th- so one thing though that I thought was um, interesting is that the the con artist plot gets more and more complicated to the point where um, there's a really interesting kind of juxtaposition between this being a movie that's being directed and then the family, the poor family, directing their own movie 
inside the lives of the rich family because the con itself requires that they rehearse mm. for parts. So like each of them is an actor and they write well, they, lines. They're not supposed to know each yeah, other. Yeah, they're not supposed to know yeah, each other. They're not supposed to know each other. And the, and the first crack in the veneer is that the, the son is the youngest in the family of, of the rich family. And he says, oh, you guys smell the same. He, like, he mm-hmm. walks up to one of them and, and he goes like, oh, same smell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then they go back to their poor house and they're like, oh, we should use different detergent and different shampoo and make sure that they don't know that we're part of the same family. Yeah, and smell actually becomes, uh, is an important thing throughout the film, right? Because later it kind of trigger, triggers yeah. the, the dad. But I just thought it was interesting that the son is like, direct. he's directing, like the dad would read lines. So they write lines, like they'll write the scripts before they go into their next day. And then, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the, and and the son's like, Dad, home. you're going way too high with this. You need to bring down your performance. <laughs> and so it's really, you're really, it's yeah. really cool because you're getting, yeah. you know, you're kind of invested in, can they pull this off? And they're all coming together as a family. And But I also thought it was cool just because it was like, almost like the family was directing another movie. So there was like, it's a movie inside of a movie. Yeah. So uh, the, the the housekeeper... A big part of the movie set, it takes place in this rich people's home. It's a beautiful home that was in the story was built by an architect as his private home. So this architect had built homes everywhere, but this is kind of like really a famous, his like own a famous dream. architect. Or they keep putting up like yeah. a newspaper clippings from this it, architect. In reality, the yeah, in reality, the house was uh, built by a set designer. So it wasn't. Uh, oh really? It, it wasn't an existing I landmark. Yeah. Yeah, but um, so. The housekeeper was already there when the architect was there, and the architect passed away. They bought the house, and then the housekeeper knew the house in and out. So they're like, "Okay, you can stay on staff." So they, they had a very long and trusted relationship with the housekeeper. She was great. She just, she could, she would bring whatever they needed even before they thought to ask. It was all very intuitive, and there was a good flow of the household, mm-hmm. and everything was perfect. What I found interesting about, but yeah. so they needed. Oh, no, they needed her out. So, they, yeah. But what, well, what I was just going to say, like, you're starting to lean into. So the movie sounds like perfectly reasonable up until this point. But if you've seen like any of uh, Bong Joon Ho's other films, you would know that they're usually pretty surreal. Like Snow Pre- no, Snowpiercer is like a movie that, about class warfare, also, but it's set on a train that circles the globe. Uh, the the Earth infinitely. Yeah, it's a dystopian climate. Uh, yeah, horror. yeah, like the whole planet's frozen over, and this this like ancient steampunk train is this like going around in circles forever, and the whole of human society lives on a train, and anyway, fights on this train. It doesn't make it's like, and it, it's literally divided into classes in the cars of the. Yeah, train. and then he did like the host and Ukja. And Ukja, it's is it Ukja or the with the the animal, the creature? Yeah, yeah, and that's with the super yeah pig. the super pig, and so it's always like there's always like an effects kind of surreal kind of aspect to it. In fact, aesthetically, his films are normally a lot more almost like um, they're also more surreal, like they're more comical and and more VFX. Like the VFX are actually visible, like to it, like like in yeah. a more. I don't know how to put it, but like more um, satirical, almost. Well, literally, yeah, but uh, it, both in Okja and The Host, there's a, a sci-fi monster, a creature that doesn't exist in the, in our yeah. reality. So it's completely generated. Yeah, and so, yeah, and usually right from the get-go, you're like, oh, okay, like, this is a weird world. <laughs> you know, you're not, 
You're not <laughs> you're not really paralleling your life when you're watching his films normally, especially with Snowpiercer. I remember seeing the posters for Snowpiercer up in Europe because it didn't come out in North America right away because I didn't think they thought there was a market. And I was like, what is this? Europeans have crazy films. Even though they had... Even though they had Captain America as the lead actor, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I thought it was a. Um, I really love that 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 movie. It stuck with me. That's how I determine whether I like a movie or not. Is how many times I yeah, reference it, it really stuck with me. Yeah, yeah. Snowpiercer. I, I, when I saw it, I was like, okay, that was a bit simple. <laughs> like, poor people are great, rich people are awful. <laughs> da da da. Then you start thinking about it. it. It does feel like we're on a train, and if it stops, everything will crash. And so, whatever to keep the train going. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think he, I think he, uh, the director is considered uh, a literalist um, by like film critics, which is not me, um, but someone who obviously like does not. He uses metaphors to literally describe uh, the the situations, the social situations of uh, of our contemporary I, life. The the way I interpret it is that the the things he's actually a horror director, and he but he <clears> doesn't use horror in the in the sense of uh, oh you're gonna die or, but he uses the real fear that people have is so you're gonna be poor i see yeah and that is a much more real fear so i always wonder is he that socially involved and does he want to um, facilitate change through his movies and awareness or is he using climate change and poverty and class struggle as Material. the most real fears that we have and to amplify mm. them yeah, maybe that's... Um... Because I, 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 for example, I was watching Okja, and it seems like a call for veganism. Like, we can't support the meat industry. It's horrible. Yeah. So I looked up, is Bong Joon-hoi a vegetarian or a vegan? And he said in an interview, oh, we, we were researching the movie, and we went to a couple of slaughterhouses, like really big-scale slaughterhouses in the U.S., and it was so awful, I couldn't eat animal products anymore. So during the shooting of the movie, he was vegan. <laughs> But he said, oh, then I went back to Korea and it's just so delicious and I just went back to barbecue. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know if we've really uh, dissected the ethical fabric of... And, and that's, that's, maybe, that, that's maybe what I mean with like, as opposed to student Marxist films and the, mm-hmm. the, the people who make those films might really believe in the cause and he might just be interested in the cause for the emotional potential. Yeah, it's in, so it's like, it's, it's an interesting question, like if any director... Um, of that level is ever really fully committed to the cause or and you could probably extrapolate this to artists yeah is that possible because you you need investors you need uh, marketing you need uh, people you're probably not gonna you can't make a movie and treat everyone nice on set you need your super pack it seems Yeah, like and and make make the whole set and make everyone be vegan and sustainable and pay everyone fairly, not make them work overtime, uh, mm-hmm. give people enough vacation, and then still get a movie done. I, it, it seems uh, difficult. Yeah, it was kind of. I was watching an interview with him, and um, it was kind of interesting to see him talking, like referring to poor and rich people. But like, uh, for example, in the opening, you know, the in the opening scene, you, you obviously see the street around their house and stuff like that. And they gathered all of the signage and like art, like props from that scene from real poor neighborhoods. But as he was like describing, it, I was like, mm, real poor neighborhoods, <laughs> like you know that he was going into these neighborhoods and scavenging for 
you know, authentic uh, kind of scraps. And I don't know, it, it kind of made me feel a little bit weird. It's, it's the same with, with, uh, with Ai Weiwei taking that self-portrait of himself as a dying kid on the beach. Oh, I didn't know he did that. During like the Syrian refugee it, crisis? There's a famous picture of, of yeah, and there's a, I think there's a famous picture of, of a, a baby that, or a kid that's dead, arrives dead on mm-hmm. the beach, floating yeah, yeah. On the wa- from the water, from the ocean. And he took a picture of himself in the same pose. And everybody's like, what are you trying to do? And is this just for the fame? And you're just using their misery for your own good. And yeah, yeah it gets so appropriation tricky. might might be something. I don't have enough. I, I don't have enough on his background in this. Uh, so, yeah, I don't. I don't know how you feel, but 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 seeing seeing the film. Yeah. But seeing the film, did you? I don't know. We still have to explain. Very briefly, the rest of the yeah, plot yeah. So, is w- just, so normally um, his films are surreal, and so you, you up until this point we've described the family getting embedded in this rich family, and then the precipice of sur- of the surreal kind of un- unfolds or unravels. Like the denouement is actually where the surreal uh, becomes present in the film. About like what two thirds of the way through, maybe halfway through the movie. Well, what happens is that the the rich family goes on a camping trip. So they're gone, and then the poor family's like, let's enjoy the house, just us, and like have some nice food and sit on the beautiful couch and look at the beautiful garden, and just for two days we can live like them. And so they're enjoying themselves, and all of a sudden the housekeeper who got fired, the old housekeeper, arrives. In the rain. In the rain. And she's like, please let yeah. me in. Yeah, it's very dramatic, and uh, it's one of those uh, cinematic... Uh, vehicles to use rain and she's like please let me in there's someone in the basement and so her husband has been in the basement for years because he had so much debt that he was just running from debt collectors and then he'd rather just live in a basement anonymously because the rich people never went into the basement and so he she goes in there and actually gives him a bottle of milk like he's a baby (laughs) and uh, because he hasn't eaten in three days or something and they discover it that's another sort of horror story not a horror story of like the devil is coming from hell and he's going to cut you in half it's like no you're gonna your business is going to fail and you're going to be in so much debt that you have to live outside of uh yeah you have to live in hiding yeah and i guess it's not that's another time where where, what i mean with like using a a realistic fear of people as a horror vehicle yeah yeah and the basement space itself was designed as like a i guess like a bomb shelter when the architect uh, like for rich people to protect themselves from outside threats. Yeah, which is another, which is, it's a fear that rich people have that a middle class person doesn't know of like being kidnapped or people wanting to take everything you yeah. have and uh, that's that that more money, more problems. Yeah, it's try. quite ironic because like the rich people have the I, same fear I, yeah. of ending up in the place of the poor people that they employ. And anyway. Um, yeah, so, yeah. It, it, it's funny there hasn't been a horror movie about student loans. <laughs> yeah, or just, uh, well, the whole time I'm thinking like, yeah, this seems like the artist's life. Uh, <laughs> these poor people are really like, uh, they're very familiar to me as uh, my friends and family uh, from art. <laughs> yeah. um, but also... Oh, yeah, yeah. My friend lives in the basement. <laughs> and I, actually, a couple of weeks ago, I was... Um, <laughs> doing this thing with a bunch of artists in uh, Ottawa, building this lab to help with artist precarity. And um, so we were brainstorming different ideas to help artists. And there was this huge theme. And I don't know, this is like prior to the Oscars buzz and stuff like that. 
it was such a big theme that people just kept saying it. I eventually like wrote it down and Instagrammed a picture of it, but like they kept saying the word parasite. They're like, artists are like parasites. We find the bourgeoisie or the rich people, and then we just like cling or attach to them and suck their blood. And I'm like, I d- extract yeah, value. But I kept yeah. thinking, like, you know what? I don't think it looks like that to me. To me, it looks like. You know, you find these rich people and they kind of like toss a couple coins your way and keep walking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the funny thing where you're a young artist, you're like, whoa, somebody gave me $500. Holy shit, I'm rich. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, exactly. But I don't think that's just that's just because you've been so. uh, Well, I think it's one of the tensions in this film as well, Raph, which is like we're rooting for this family to take advantage of the rich people. But meanwhile, and so there's this illusion that they're building control and that they they are getting something out of it. But then obviously when you get this reveal that this man is like living in the basement and he actually is happy with his life in this subterranean culture, like he he does this, he, like he ha- he's like, he loves this place. And he's like, also treats the rich people like gods. Like, and he's grateful to the rich family for giving him this subterranean life. You real and they even talk about it. The poor family as like you know, oh, these are such good jobs, and you know, like that. That is the the ultimate aspiration. Yeah, yeah. it really struck me anyway that, as yeah. an artist who like it's a museum show. Like we should, we are lucky <laughs> to get this opportunity. Uh, I don't know, not to make it all about artists, but well, you it is it it is it, no, but it's an interesting parallel because uh, the job of an artist is what what I call the category of dream jobs. Mm-hmm. It's not like the competition for being someone's tax person and or being yeah. someone like like let's say a, a good solid job that you always find work with is and but not everyone wants mm-hmm. to do it. Like to become a mechanical engineer or it's not like being a basketball player. And so being a basketball player is a dream job. And so the, you are lucky to get into the NBA and. Uh, make a living that way and play basketball and be adored and all these things and so the same for a musician or for a a filmmaker these things that anyone would do for free and that even a lot of rich people will throw money at it and you know like maybe they've made all their money and say okay now I'm going to be an artist and you'll just spend half their net worth building a studio and (laughs) make stuff that nobody wants and like Jim Carrey it's it's a dream job in the sense that you yeah, it's a dream job in the sense that you would do it without any compensation. And you probably wouldn't do uh, corporate taxes for free for anyone. Yeah, I mean, I might consider a dream job like a passive income finance <laughs> or something like that, like just having money that makes money. No, I... I, I it's not a job I, at all. I, it, that's that's not a job at all, but then there's always like, what do you do with your time? Mm-hmm. Well, what is a, what is a fulfilling because life? Because that, that does... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it, there is a point. Uh, there's that book, uh, the Four Hour Work Week. Yeah, the Tim Ferriss book. And it's sort of like finding these. Yeah, and it's all about finding these loopholes where you you have uh, remote workers that work for less than you do, and you let them do the work, and then you take the margin. Um, but the, at the end of the book, he talks about like, okay, now that you've set everything up and you have this passive income. Uh, you're going to experience depression because you have too much time by yourself and your mind will turn inward. So the best thing you can do now is do volunteer work. So you're at least with people every day. Right. 
Right, yeah. So it, it seems like a very ironic ending of the book. Like you have a job and you're surrounded by nice people and then you do everything you can not to have that job anymore. And at the end of the book, you're depressed because you're not, you're not interacting with people and you don't have a community. Yeah, so this film, though, I think like draws, at least draw, drew that out of me in that this family, even once they're fully employed, then there's this struggle between the two poor families now fighting over who can be the, employed by this rich family. They're fighting each other to yeah, the death. Yeah, just yeah. to be in yeah. servant like positions in, in, <laughs> to these rich people. So I think that's yet another parallel of like class warfare, yeah. which is like we normally fight each other at the bottom rather than actually try and address structural issues of inequality. Yeah, um, he's very good at bringing that that up to the point where I guess in I guess because we spoil the movies, I told you we we're rotten. We're going to spoil it. Um, they kill each other, right? So um, now. It's it a, is fight a fight to, to the, the death. death. But yeah. then, you know, my argument from two seconds ago is brought up because there. Th- do you want to describe how the film ends, or should we should we go all the way there? Well, the, 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 I th- I feel like so. The the second part is where the old housekeeper comes back, and there's a struggle between them. And then the third part is where, at first, the rich people seem normal. They're like, "Well, we need some help cleaning. We need some help teaching English." But then they start organizing a party, and it turns really. Uh, decadent in the sense that she is on the phone with someone saying, oh, that would be cute, that would be cute for the party, and the driver behind her is doing all the work and he's struggling to carry all the groceries, and it's uh, it gets to a point where... Um, I've seen this a lot in Brazil. It's it's such a... There's no middle class in Brazil. Mm. It's You're either above or yeah. below. And I remember someone in my family made Christmas dinner. And I'm like, oh, great. Did you cook this? He's like, no, I picked the recipes. It's just like you just have a book and, and the maid sits next to you. And it's like, I think that would go well with that. Oh. And we're not used to that coming from a more egalitarian country. It's just you look at uh, just seeing housekeepers with spoiled children and things like that. Yep. It's, it's really a thing to see. So I think the movie turns to that at some point, and they start complaining about the smell of their staff. Yes. They're like, oh, I smell them again. <laughs> and that's the point where they start, the, the staff starts like losing their mind because they were so happy with the job, and they thought they were respected, but actually they smell yeah. bad, and they, they'd rather not have them around. They just want them to fix And then stuff. there's like actually, you reminded me of this moment. There's a theme that carries through where one of the, the children of the rich family likes pretending to be um, an indigenous person or like in the classic sense, like cowboys and likes playing cowboys and Indians. And he's like, he shoots arrows. Yeah, around he has the, the feathers on his head. And yeah. And then um, in the poor family, the father becomes the driver, as Raphael was just saying. And he is asked at this party to dress up as like in a headdress and like jump out and like you know, I guess scare people, you know, get, I don't know what the, the premise is. He has to, uh, it, they, it's a birthday party and they've set up a little theater, yeah. a little play for the, and and, and uh, all the cool people, all the rich friends arrive at the garden party and they're dressed really well. And the, the, the oldest son of the poor family is like, wow, they look so cool. I'll never be able to be one of them. Yeah, and, but the, uh, so the, that's the moment where they, they increase the contrast between the, the status. And I think, though, that I just want to mention that it, I don't know if they're conscious of this or not, but like asking the poor person that, to assume the role of an indigenous, <laughs> like traditional person was like layering it on really rich for me because it, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like... We want you to be. It, it, it seems yeah. like he 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 like 
he cooked a steak and then he put more salt on it and then more pepper and he's like you know what we're gonna make it really spicy. yeah just because the europeans it. would have used cowboys and indians to refer to the savages right to like lower the indigenous people below the status of like normal human beings and in- anyway so then he's like now play the role of the savage that you are and he's and he's smelling him during that scene yeah. too and he's like oh he smells so yeah. gross he's like holding his breath and the and the and the poor driver guy is like, I don't want to do this. And he's like, you know what? I'm paying you a double overtime. So you yeah, like do it. act like the savage that you are, basically. And and he's also and, and then the rich yeah. guy's like holding his breath because he's like, I can't stand the smell of this guy. So they, things explode. Yeah. Um, but they don't explode, I guess, in the way that you would predict, like you would predict the cab the, the that, you know, that that boiling point would lead to the father just like kind of lashing out violently. But the violence comes from elsewhere. Right. Should we spoil mm-hmm. that part too? <laughs> yeah, I I really think even if you know the whole plot, you'll still enjoy the movie. Okay, just so as t- much. tell us I what. Think it's that kind keep of keep movie. going. Tell us what happens next. No, you 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 go ahead. <laughs> so it's the well. I'm just trying to like. Did you just watch the film, or did I? Because it's been a few months, so I'm I, I don't want to get the details wrong here, but um, the. I guess the yeah I don't remember it exactly. Either. The other family is, um, I guess, gets out of the the basement, um, and basically, a, like, picks up a knife and stabs. Um, there, there ends up being like a everybody starts everyone stabbing, starts stabbing each other. Each Let's other, put yeah. it that way because the, it's quite chaotic. Well, the, the little rich boy of the family is traumatized by he once saw the guy. That, who, the the guy who's in debt, the husband of the old housekeeper, he's been living in the basement, and the young boy saw him once and thought he was a ghost, and he's been traumatized. He has psychological mm-hmm. damage from it, and so the guy from the basement comes back out of the and basement, and the little boy loses his mind. Everybody starts running around, and everybody starts stabbing each other, and uh, uh, choosing for themselves, not choosing for the other. Yeah, and there, we we skipped over a bunch of details like that person was passed out because he got hit over the head with that rock that we mentioned from the first scene. The um, yeah, it's one of those movies rock. where everything comes yeah. together at the end. All the all the elements. Yeah, but then there is like a final. There's kind of like time after this whole murder investigation thing. The movie's not over. That's not where the movie ends. And then there's like no, you know, so the because the father. So the house uh, basically there's there's a. There's a horror in the house, and the house is unsellable for a long time. No one wants to live there because there's been a massacre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so, and yeah, and the, and basically, like the family kind of goes into hiding. But the father, who was accused with this murder, like the driver, um, because he does stab, um, he is involved in the stabbing incidents that that take place. He, so he stabs the the husband or whatever. Um, it's getting confusing for our audience. I hope it's like this is clear. But he anyway goes into yeah. hiding, and in hiding, like he he's in the basement. But we don't know that, right? So we just we just yeah. assume he's like in the woods somewhere. He's disappeared into some other ass, you know, part of Korea or wherever. And um, but then it's it's sort of like there, there's a moment where um, the son, you know, has this theory that the dad is still alive and communicating via these switches in the basement um and you like with more yeah there's this i i felt this aspect of the film was actually like kind of the weakest because they never explain and this is like stupid logic kind of like i'm a three-year-old here but like why did they have a switch in the basement for the lights uh in the stairwell but basically there's a switch in the basement 
that allows the lights in the stairwells to turn on and off. Um, and this is like not really explained why it exists, but I think it's just like part of uh, describing the, behind, you know, like the basement as this like control center or like the infrastructural belly where the heating and pipes and air. That might, yeah, maybe, maybe that's a common thing for, uh, uh, what do you call it? A panic room? Mm -hmm. Is that what it's called? That you should have some way to communicate. Like a, where a rich person. Yeah. And so that might be a, a, a regular feature in uh, when you. It's basically like doomsday prepping for rich mm -hmm. people. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I guess all you need to know. So you have to have a well-stocked basement. I feel like there's something there that we we should know. Like there's there's something built into this reference that I wasn't able to unpack. But our listeners are probably like, I know, but they can't <laughs> yeah, hear let me. Us, it's this and this. Let and us this. know if you if you do know, like what the meaning of uh, yeah. this. Because the, the 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 guy that was you know from the previous housekeeper's family that was living in this basement, he used it all the time to communicate. And throughout the film, you see the lights flicker and stuff. And you're like, what was that? And it's like, maybe maybe before we re reveal the end, we should do the ad. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Let's do our ad. So yeah, like cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> we have an ad from a listener. <laughs> Um, yeah, for anyone who's actually yeah. made it this far, we forgot. So, yeah, and also, if you have an advertisement, Raf and I, when we started the podcast, we really had this idea that we were doing it for other artists, for other... And artists include filmmakers and actors, and so I think we're still within the realm of the arts. Um, and so we wanted to give artists an opportunity also, or, or a platform, to get their messages out to other people. And so we have free ads uh, on the podcast. We always dream someone might pay for one, but it's just not realistic. Um, and it's kind of like a trope. I don't think we would accept payment. Though. Well, like podcasts always have ads. We would always find a way of like, <laughs> well, actually donate it to a charity. That's nice yeah. of you to say. I think we would, yeah, we would buy ourselves better microphones. So anyway, um, there we have, the, yeah, it's kind of a trope of uh, podcasts to read ads. So here we go. Normally there's like some kind of ad music, but bop, 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 bop. <laughs> time for the ad. <laughs> do, do. Do, do, do. Uh, hey, Raphael, have you heard of Airbyte Gallery in London? Oh, pronounced Arbite. So, hey, Raphael, have you heard of Arbite Gallery no. in London? <laughs> no, I haven't, Jeremy. Well, they're a super cool gallery who commission and exhibit works by artists using digital technologies and new media in their practice. Nice. Yeah, an opening the 26th of March this year. They've got a solo exhibition of work by Olia Liliana. L Ol <laughs> Olia Lialina, <laughs> including a new work called Hosted, as well as older works like Summer and the Best Effort Network. Sounds great. How long is the exhibition on for? It runs until 30th of May. Go check it out. Why am I why do I get all the enthusiastic lines anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. You you truly are a founder. Oh, that's of like a nice embedded compliment. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you to Arvite and to Rebecca who sent along that ad. Um, and of course, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's, sure it's an excellent show. Olia's work is awesome. Raf and I are huge fans. Um, so it's easy to support. Yeah. We're both hosting the, her work. Are you, uh, are you hosting? I'm currently not. So like, maybe people would be interested in knowing that. The okay. I'm hosting a few frames of, of the work summit. Yeah. yeah. Hey, yeah. Olia, if you want me to host some of your work, let me know. Uh, but a lot of her work uses the network. Yeah. She's like, uh, does really interesting work and has done for many, many years, Uh, that would be considered what traditional net art because the artwork exists in the network um, and can't exist outside of the network context. Anyway, so she's she's a she's a HTML purist. Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty cool purist in that in that sense. 
And the and the yeah. so you have like her swinging piece. Is that the one you that some where the well the sw- the swinging piece is a it's a gif animation, but the frames are spread out over different servers. Yeah. So she asked the different people to each host one. And you frame. see the URL bar and that like way go through all you, of the frames. Yeah, but that way the same way in the old internet when connections were slow, you would see a, a gif sort of loading slowly and then playing fast, and then, so this way because all the all, each frame is on a different host, and calling a different host just takes a little longer. That way, there's a sort of stuttering of the classic internet connection. Yeah, it's kind of beautiful, though, because it ties the body and performance to the network. Yeah. Anyway, go see that if you're in London or elsewhere on your way through. Arbeit Gallery. Yeah, Arbeit. We'll put the link in the of show course, notes. Of course, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so where were we? Yeah, so the... What's funny is we, we've taken about 48 minutes to, <laughs> uh, or maybe 40 minutes to describe the plot of the movie. And is the plot relevant? To well, we've movie? been talking through a lot of the issues as they come up, social contexts. Yeah. Um, but, but you know how some movies, like, like Predator, like the, the plot is not really relevant. Yeah. It's like, okay, there's an alien and he has to get him. That's all you need yeah. to know. And then it's more about visual storytelling. And in this movie... Do you think you can summarize the movie as just class struggle, poor family, rich family, or it, mm. it, it's such a what? What I find, if I would if I would classify this movie, it's like I would say it's a well crafted one. But I I think even the director it's a, it's would say it's an example of a well crafted. Yeah, even story. the director would say like this is a story that's been told over and over and over again, and I'm just telling it in yeah. contemporary context. I think we would probably argue as artists even there are no new stories, and so there are only kind of um, contemporary reflections like or reframing of existing stories and so yeah because it, it, a lot of people the way they see movies is very focused on the plot mm-hmm. and then maybe the second or third viewing you start to focus more on things like art direction or music yeah. or editing or color yeah, yeah like even in this film um they're like there are several hints at like him being a hitchcock fan like you can even see like Hitchcock movies on the bookshelf and stuff like that, and he's kind of a, a fan of classic Hollywood storytelling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think like you know some of the themes that you would see in this film you would have seen in a Hitchcock film, uh, or you would have seen in a Shakespeare play or whatever. Um, yeah, someone someone once said like we have to keep rewriting love songs. It's not that falling in love has changed, but just you're young and you don't want to listen to your parents' love songs, so you need a new version. That's the same thing with stories. I would say what's different about this, if you took it, it not just for the film, but the film in the context of our current like global context, is A, this came from Korea, it didn't come from L.A., uh, and I do think that that's kind of interesting and relevant. Um, because it gets us to reflect. Yeah, and what's interesting is yeah. he, he, he did make an English-spoken film before, Snowpiercer, and that didn't go as far. And then he did Parasite, which maybe is more true to what mm-hmm. he is. Yeah, but from a, like, what's changed perspective, it's like this: the class struggle is global now, right? Like, you wouldn't... You might have argued that 20 years ago. I, I don't know. There's, but isn't there, there are classic tales of... Uh, uh, Japanese aristocracy in in uh, movies mm-hmm. that are similar about uh, yeah I I keep thinking I'm blanking like, on the name but yeah. the, the, what's uh, what's the classic uh, Japanese movie with the, the 
Uh, he's the most famous Japanese director, and I can't come up with Kurosawa? his name now. But uh, like, yeah, yeah. And uh, that movie is it? Ron, Rashomon or Ron? What? Uh, Rashomon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's that's sort of a, a similar. Uh, I'm saying there's been stories of class struggle throughout different cultures in the world mm-hmm. throughout history. I don't think that's new to capitalism. Or no, to no. Globalism. I'm just thinking, like, we're paying attention now, and why are we paying attention now? I guess Les Miserables came out two years yeah. ago at Christmas time. No one was like, this changes everything. Yeah, and this Charles Dickens. <laughs> you know. it, it, Charles Dickens is the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so you're saying, like, this is a story that's always been told. Mind you, he does mash it up with several other genres, like the con uh, kind of genre. Yeah. I don't know if that classifies as a genre, but, like, the grifter yeah, genre. Yeah. Um, okay. And a little bit, a little of, bit horror, of horror, mystery, and a thriller. Of, uh, yeah. So. Yeah, but what I what I the way I really see it is that he just sort of uses uh, current topics as a barometer of what's on mm-hmm. people's minds, uh, and so Snowpiercer plays with climate change, and the, every it feels like a lot of our peers, a lot of people feel this end of times mm. feeling that you might not have felt thirty years right, ago. Right, right, right. And this mo- this movie plays on failing at capitalism and you're in debt and you have no way out which is a real fear like we we have a lot of friends that have six seven figure uh, student yeah. loans and they're really it, it becomes such an abstract monster you don't even know how to pay it off so you're just like okay that and i think in a lot of his movies there's just a, a literal monster in the room and you're just trying to do your chores and like brush your teeth and just pretend that that monster is not standing next Mm -hmm. to you well even in the film though i guess like he refers to the multi-generational aspect of this story right because he talks about having the first maid had was the maid of the original architect who then handed the home down to the next rich family and then she survived that handover Ooh, she survived right like and then it continues on and on right and then of course yeah in in the beginning of the film also the the poor family like you see the son succeeding a little bit he's like he's tutoring he's making a little extra cash they can go for a nice Mm -hmm. meal but the dad is seems like he's an alcoholic and he just whatever opportunity comes along he'll mess up and he says oh i don't like saving for money i want to live in the now and so there's this also this this family tragedy and then ultimately though the son does become wealthy and is able to buy the house back. This is kind of like how the film ends. Or or so you think. Yeah. yeah. He's like, you know, I'll just make enough money so then I can invite the whole family and can live that life. Yeah. And then the father is able to come out of hiding. But it ends up not being possible. Yeah. 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 So. Um, and it, 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 that is interesting to me um, about the idea of a non-Hollywood film and that the idea of, of the happy ending not being uh, set in stone. Mm-hmm. It, not everything has a happy end. And maybe that's changing a little bit now uh, because we, we reviewed Uncut Gems, which wasn't a happy <laughs> yeah, yeah. ending either. But I like that tension when you're watching a movie. Like, if you're watching a mainstream movie, you know, uh, if you're watching a rom-com and then, you know, everything will be fine in the mm-hmm. end. It's not going to be like, oh, the woman didn't get the guy and she kills herself and that's the end of the yeah. movie. That, that's not when you go see a rom-com. That's not going to happen. And so these movies, there's a tension when you're watching a movie. You really don't know what's Do you think it's happen. because of like television, you know, the golden age of television, like in TV, there's so much media, like there's so many shows competing for attention that you remember when Game of Thrones like killed off its lead character in the first season kind of thing? 
That was like a huge TV moment. Yeah, I never watched Game of Thrones. Okay, well, they kill their main yeah. character in the first season, which is like, a, you know, whenever you're watching a movie, you're like, nah, That's the actor's going to be okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, because you're so, yeah. you know, it's so <laughs> conventional. He's too expensive to <clears throat> kill off. Yeah, like I've watched a, a yeah. million different stories and the main character always survives, right? So I think maybe um, yeah. either like we're so media saturated now that you need to, there needs to be a a twist, but I guess twists always existed in some manner <clears throat> back in the Twilight Zone days or mm-hmm. the Hitchcock days, like I was talking about earlier, or the, let's even say the Rashomon days or whatever, like different perspectives on the same story. <clears throat> so, um, but I think like audiences probably like, at least I can speak from my own experience. Like I'd like to be surprised more often because remember last podcast, we were just talking about how boring but, everything is. Yeah. But when when you watched Parasite, did you feel surprised? Um, well, it's funny because I, I I didn't tell the story, but like I heard about Parasite for the first time at a party, and I was like chatting in a kitchen party with this guy, and he's like he had just come from an early preview of Parasite. This is like six months ago, like because it was doing this film festival circuit, and he's like, oh my god. I like I can't give away the ending. <laughs> like things just get crazy. Mm. And so I kind of went into the film with this attitude like at the theater like oh my mind is going to be blown. <laughs> and <laughs> like I don't I'm never going to see it coming. It's, it's pretty bad watching a movie that's that's hyped yeah, up too much. Yeah, and then I my mind obviously w- wasn't blown. I was like, "Oh, this is like a sophisticated retelling of class <laughs> struggle or whatever." Uh, yeah. and so I guess it depends on what spectrum, uh, you're, you know, you're watching something like this on, like whether you've watched other things, but it might be surprising to someone who's like watched, um, you know, mainstream cinema. And then they're like, they hear about this, like, cause let's consider that the other movie that was up for an Oscar that everyone thought would win was 1917, which is like a very traditional war, uh, drama when you think about it. Right. Um, yeah, but then the the technical execution. The technical is new. execution is new. Yeah, and we'll it, we'll probably talk about that in another podcast. But like the story of like you know survival through adversity. It's definitely who's good and who's bad is very, very clear, clear. Yeah. Whereas this in this movie, I think they they yeah. really try and no. The, but I have to say, in 1917, maybe what's a little bit new was that the you're waiting for this heroic ending, mm-hmm. and you think like, oh, he he went through all this hardship, and now that the, he saved the day. But it's more like. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Carry on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And and so that so that was a little a little different than a normal heroic war movie. Yeah, it's true. He doesn't get the medal at it. But that's a whole other chapter. On no, you're podcast. right. But like, but yeah, if you think yeah, about yeah, Star mean, Wars or other war movies, it's like at the end there's the medal award ceremony. <laughs> it's like you know, yeah, or at the end of yeah. my favorite is at the end of Lord of the Rings where. It, they do a montage of all of the films, and they're all like hugging and be like, "We did it!" We survived. Yes. <laughs> everyone goes home feeling great. Um, I don't think that that's what people want anymore. Yeah. I think also for this podcast to be great, if there are more surprises, because it's like, well, it does seem that even even the big Marvel movies they've become more of a, a series than single movies, so they don't have to end with a happy ending. They end with a cliffhanger. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, there's something now that that maybe the happy ending is not standard anymore. Hmm. Yeah. So that might be a new thing. But it, it, the, the, I think the, a clear example of that is in uh, there was the cowboy movies. I think the first movie ever made was a western, and up until the '60s, all cowboy movies like good guys, bad guys, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of racist and etc. 
And then there was the whole wave of revisionist westerns where you're not clear who's good or who's bad mm-hmm. and you're not even clear if it was a happy ending because you don't know who to root for and everyone's a crook. And um, Well, the rule of storytelling is so, there's got to be something at risk as we've talked about before. There has to be some tension. And so like one piece of tension probably throughout this film is like, should I be rooting for this fam? Who should I be rooting for all the way up until the end, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I don't. I think in this movie you don't really get close to any of the characters. You don't really become friends with any of the characters. Because, well, I think that that's intentional. At least that's my read because they're like, like yeah. I said, they're but, directing but, but themselves you know, as actors in their own film. In in a lot of mafia movies or like The Sopranos or Goodfellas, uh, the the criminals are actually the lead characters, and you see their vulnerable side and their funny side, and you start liking them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. you feel bummed that the FBI gets them, and etc. And in this movie, there's not that sort of jokiness that you start liking the actors. Hmm. I wonder if it's also because there's this aspect of the film we didn't discuss. Or did, that... or did you did you like any of the actors? I think you're not supposed to like anyone. I thought that like when, when you're watching the yeah. film, you're supposed to be, I, I you know, you're, you, they kind of lead you to want to root for this family, but then you realize that, that it's, it's, they're, they're, they're kind of parasites, right? Like you wouldn't root for a, a parasite if you had one, <laughs> probably there is a certain, I don't know. I think it plays with that tension. Like, uh, yeah. is this right or wrong? You know? And, um, one of the things that I kept thinking about during the movie, though, is that these, they're, throughout the movie, you never get to see them as they are. You only get to see them as they perform for others. And performing poverty or performing... But do you think the rich people are performing too? Yeah, of course. I think that they make a huge deal about that, especially in that party scene near the end where they're like, you know, and yeah, they're not even yeah. sure what to wear, right? The the poor family, right? And yeah. everything is choreographed. and No, no, but... You know, but but are the rich people being themselves? No, I think I think they they too right are like specifically because there's this quote unquote dumb uh, housewife character that they they introduce right like this stereotype of the mom, the mom? yeah the mom that's the wealthy mother um, and she's very anxious. Well, the the thing in the movie is she, her her housekeeper at some point gets sick, which was created by the con mm-hmm. family. And she has to do the household, but she's completely lost. Everything is falling apart. In the, in yeah, the exactly. Week. And she doesn't feel like she's that competent either. And she's always afraid that her husband is going to, you know, you know, get mad at her and, you know, that she's going to make the wrong decision. So she feels like she's in a position of precarity as well. Um, I suppose the, like, father never... There's, like, a patriarchy to the story. And the wealthy dad, uh, you never really feel he's at particular risk. He's kind of like, yeah. Also, the but the dad even his everything's his life seems uh, just automatic. There's no there's no struggle in his life. He just he goes to a meeting, tells people what to do, and he always knows the answer. And there's there's no building of like whether he inherited his position or whether yeah. he worked for it himself. And so there's you're not emotionally involved with him. But either. I think that that's. And like the film is really iconoclastic that way. Like it's all of these icons or like, like sort of stereotypes of these classic figures. And he just fits. He's like the every businessman kind of thing. In a way, I found it a little bit like hard to relate to because that that version of a businessman doesn't exist in business as far as I know outside of finance anymore. Maybe it still exists in finance, but in tech, 
like that version of a businessman. I do think from from my experience that uh, in Japan and Korea, things are more but, old-fashioned. So people dress up more. Uh, it, the the man-woman thing is less equal. Yeah. And uh, so it, th- that whole idea of the salary man and the... It's more... It, sometimes it feels like they're a bit stuck. Well, like this 50s. week, I, I had um, dinner with an old friend, actually, who's my old boss. And, you know, he's like... In like in his late career, he's an executive and, you know, he's got a family. He's got grandkids, actually. Like he's very esteemed. He's been, you know, chief technology officer at different companies all over the world. I was visiting him as new job. And it's like, just like me and like everyone else, um, his, you know, he took me by his desk and it's like his desk is like just in the in the mass of all the desks. And it like looks like, you know, everyone else. It, there's no like idea of a corner office or a driver or anything, right? It's like, he didn't even have a parking space. Mm. Um, so the idea of like wealth and status on the job anyway, is unfamiliar <clears throat> uh, to me. Showing that? Yeah, because it's considered distasteful. Yeah. In fact, you're supposed to do the opposite. Just uh, as like, as a matter of leadership, you're supposed to like, and it's performative in a way. You're supposed to strip away any evidence. Yeah, it's symbolic. Yeah. It it is funny that the the classic boss would wear a top hat and then tell you what to do, <laughs> and the new boss is is in a t shirt and a hoodie just like you, and is still telling you what to do. But he's like, "Hey, I'm your friend. Yeah, yeah. Could you work late?" There's this kind weekend? of a more subversive um, yeah. tone there. It's not even it's and it, they don't evidence it in this film. So the the film definitely shows. No, you an I think old in this view. film they really visually wanted to show. The, the clear the distinction, and so they yeah. couldn't have the casual. But like, boss. could you have replaced yeah. uh, the sa- the sort of the the wealthy man with uh, like Mark Zuckerberg? Like, could he <laughs> could he be in like a t shirt and jeans? Be like, hey dudes, like. Well, I I, th- I think I think Zuckerberg particularly is is such a anomaly and such an eccentric person that that's a story unto its own. So that would would add another layer of complexity. Because Zuckerberg is looks like an android. He looks like Data from Star mm-hmm. Trek. So that adds so much complexity. I think he just wanted like a default. You're not sure. He's not the best entrepreneur in the world. He probably just fell into his job because of family connections. And, uh, you know, he's he just does what he's supposed mm-hmm. to do. Like, uh, I have a friend who's like a... I, I don't think this movie would have worked with a very charismatic... A self-made man who or a, woman. A, a cutthroat or like an evil boss, like like an extreme personality. I think the the rich family is basically kind of bland. Like they're just kind of normal. Well, they never. They just happen to. They be definitely rich. never like uh, create a situation where you might be sympathetic to them trying to help others, right? Like they don't talk about being charitable at all. They they really talk about luxury and wealth and like getting the best stuff for their party and yeah. So yeah. I don't know, and and the best for the children. It starts out no, it starts out with them wanting the best for, for their kids. Children. That's true. Like, it, it's really important. She learns English. Uh, uh, my son has issues, and maybe he through art therapy he can start feeling better. And so it starts out you, you you feel like okay they're rich but they mean well they want the best for their kids. But once it gets to the party, it's like, oh those shrimp look gross. Let's go to a better store. Uh, no, we need a nicer bow on my dress or whatever. Yeah. And then you start to feel. We we didn't talk yeah. at all about um, how art therapy and art is treated in the, <laughs> the movie, but art is like <laughs> a gateway into the psychology of uh, like one of the characters, the son. Um, but they almost use it as like um, 
And you have to disclose uh, Kristen's background here. My, the Christ, Kristen, my partner, she's a painter or or teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But doesn't she work with art therapy? No, she doesn't work with art therapy. But like, I think art therapy exists on, oh, on kind did. of the fringes of like um, credibility, <laughs> if you will, like in terms of like actual therapy versus actual art. Um, so it's like one of the it was it, it was interesting that that was the role that they chose for her to play in the the daughter to play in this movie because like i don't know if you would traditionally hire but it it, it was the build-up of the the little ri- boy of the rich family being traumatized by seeing yes. a ghost like he saw a poor person and that shocked yes, the yes, yes. <laughs> oh my god i saw some and I, it's again that fear of like because the the guy in the basement is really at the bottom like the the family is is poor but they're still you know they can walk in on the street and be okay the like maybe the family is broke and he's so far below broke that he has to go in yeah. hiding. So there's the the fear of going to zero, but there's also the fear of going like negative subterranean. into yeah. debt. And 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 because because debt is basically illegal, you can go to jail if you can't pay your debt. So you're really you're a criminal. You're not broke, yeah. you're a criminal. That's really the level of poverty. I mean, you're right, it is a Marxist story though. Like that would be like Marxist description of the problem with credit. Yeah. Um, it's usury in that it takes yeah. advantage of. But it's it's like the boy the boy is privileged the rich boy mm-hmm. is rich, and he sees this person he's not even broke he's like below broke he's like deep in the dungeon and that traumatizes him for life that that fear of being poor. And so I guess like um, capital might re- recreate itself within this boy in some manner like or the the fear of ending up in in that position or something. I don't know. But the, 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 the artworks he creates are actually pretty legitimately good. <laughs> he creates these like, <laughs> these like stunning, uh, like almost like, uh, ba- Abstract yeah, like exact sort of decooning, decooning like portraits with like tons of color and energy. <laughs> and then the daughter, uh, who's playing the role of the art therapist and the con is like, yes, the con yeah. artist. She, she doesn't know that much, but she's like, huh? Yeah. yeah, something's happening in the lower lower right corner. Do you see it in the other works yeah. too? And then the rich mom is like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> There's something happening. I'm so glad you can. But this is the point where they're throwing money at the problem, but the problem, you could still vouch for like, yeah, we, we should mm-hmm. get this kid some help because he's hurt. And no. Yeah. I, well, there's another scene that I think stands out that we didn't discuss. We should probably wrap up, but like, there's the scene where the family comes. So the family goes away on this camping trip that we described earlier, and then they come back early, which creates a lot of tension because now they have to clean up the house, but they only have like five minutes. They're drunk. Yeah, and they're drunk, and like, yeah. and then they have to. They they manage to somehow pull it off, and they're like, but they're trapped under a large coffee table <laughs> in the living room. And this coffee yeah. table becomes like a yeah, whole... Yeah, the, the architecture is very, very planned out to the story yeah. because the, the, the whole, the house is surrounded. It, all glass. It looks at the yeah. garden all the time. And so there's a couch that basically looks at the garden and the big coffee table in front of it. So they're hiding in front. The, the reason for the house to exist is the view. And so they're out of the view. They're hiding out of that view. And it... Which kind of a <clears throat> symbolic, but also of, I think like the in greater symbolism too. Like the coffee table itself is a nu- is large enough that it can, uh, in inha- like a family of four can inhabit the space underneath the coffee table. Like there's a whole set of scenes <laughs> yeah, that happen no in the coffee table, <laughs> like as if it's a room. Well, I, I used to, ju- it, yeah, it, that's the 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 weird where uh, class difference becomes physical, like. The apartment I lived in before was so small that I would often 
be in a hotel room and like this room is bigger than my <laughs> entire apartment. Well, it reminded me of New York apartments where like so, people put up it, walls that are made of blankets. You know, it's like, is this really? A, is yeah, really yeah, a, <laughs> shit yeah. like that. Yeah, and and so you and, and as an artist, sometimes you get this temporary luxury. You get invited to a conference and they put you up in a great hotel and you're like, okay, for for three days, I get a taste yeah. of this. Well, the other thing that happens in the film is this rain that we're describing causes them to come home from their quote-unquote camping trip, right? Where they would have been like slumming it, right? Also causes the slums to flood, right? The basement apartment is completely, the water goes right up to the ceiling, right? Such that it's like drowning the citizens. Um, And and for the wealthy family, it's like, oh, it spoiled our camping weekend. (laughs) If, mommy, can you make me ramen and everything will be fine? (laughs) Kind of thing. Anyway, um, there's tons. I think if you watch this film, it's like it's it's really heavy-handed, but you enjoy the heavy-handedness of it. Would be my summary. It's like, you know, there's no point. And as far as far as uh, uh, giving the the movie a thumbs up or thumbs down, or whether that's even a question. But when I watched Snowpiercer, I kind of walked away thinking, well, that was pretty stupid. And then later on, like it's such a good visual metaphor for the problems we have. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I know it's fucked, but we just got to keep going. This movie, it was more, I walked out of the movie thinking, wow, it's amazing. But afterwards, it didn't stay with me that mm. much. Well, I mean, I saw it uh, four, four or five months ago. Um, and I didn't rewatch it for this podcast. So I think... Um, no, I didn't either. No. It stayed with me enough that I, I'm like able to walk through the scenes like a memory palace. you know? Yeah, yeah, but it's it maybe... Maybe what I mean is um, when you watch the news and you see like companies that go on with things that are destructive, but they have to because the shareholders have to. I felt like Snowpiercer really had the visual metaphor mm. for that sort of perverted uh, mindset. So there's a lot of things that you just see the news and you're like, oh, yeah, it's yeah, the train yeah. that has to keep The symbolism running. of it, yeah. And this movie, this movie maybe if you go to a country like Brazil or another country with a sort of huge inequality and you see how they treat their servants, maybe you start thinking of this movie. I mean, I think L.A. would be like this movie, though. Like, that's, I really do think you could have made this movie yeah. in L.A. Um, I, do think, I, I do think when when you go to Whole Foods now, I don't know if it's the same. Since Amazon bought Whole Foods, and we'll go back into classic good point territory, <laughs> but... Uh, since since Amazon bought Whole Foods, it's become more and more of a, a warehouse for delivery. Mm. So you go there now, and it's just all these people with a keychain of the delivery company. There are different delivery companies, and they're all filling up carts for people. And the the it used to be you would see two or three and maybe 200 regular shoppers, and now it's the opposite. So you, you're basically walking around as a, as a private consumer, and the rest is... Perf- professionals working well no in i was just reading that so one of the reasons for the decline of retail you always blame amazon but actually it's um it's been a shift towards a service uh consumption versus a goods consumption economy so people are consuming like an order of magnitude because malls in america are dying if you haven't heard um but it's because not just because of amazon but because people are consuming all types of services like they're consuming experiences but they're also consuming like Uber Eats or Instacart, right? Like they're, and, yeah. and much of the. That's where the margins yeah. are. And yeah. anyway, so. Well, like, like, but I think that's similar to uh, a lot of people live in smaller homes. So where you used to have family heirlooms and you would have furniture and you would have maybe three sets of dishware and you would have a big pot to cook in. 
now everything's smaller, so you're not going to buy more knives. Well, no, yeah, I was thinking about my and... own life, and it's like, <clears throat> and even yesterday evening, I was out uh, for dinner at a, dinner at a friend's house. And it's like I don't, there's no room to buy things, so, so I'm not really allowed to buy things anymore. Like having things is an anti goal, you know. No. And and for example, you you are not having kids, and that means you're not buying a big mm-hmm. house, so you're not going to. And and you you might have more money for vacation. But it is kind of funny, even in this film, right? Like the sets are quite sparse. Like the home is not cluttered. And the first thing, obviously, like the poor family does is make a mess of this pristine home, right? Mm. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this idea of wealth and not owning things, but having people who work for you, it might be something that anyway, this may be another podcast, but like something to explore. Yeah, but this is the. It, it is, it is, um, I, I really, I see it as a horror movie that is using, using actual fears of people. And so one of those fears is, uh, I think the digital world and the world of minimalism and not having a lot of stuff and having a lot of experiences is a lot about control mm-hmm. and that, and then this messy family coming in and messing everything up and people losing control. And I think that's a big, you know, what's fear interesting about that. Like, oh, my home. No, is you're sacred. right. Um, that's also a classic marketing. Like, so all categories of products like start out in this realm of mastery or where people are trying to get control over chaos. So it's like it's the most fundamental, like the ultimate razor that yeah, will shave. It's the fundamental tension other. that we explore in product design and marketing, which is like help me get control over the chaos. So the world starts out as a chaotic yeah, uh, existence. Yeah, yeah. And then the rest of your life. Well, you're you're making tax software, so that's a classic example where people's lives are chaotic, and you can. That's right. Order. No, yeah, exactly. So I spend my days thinking about this, but it exists in other categories too. Like, oh my God, your teeth—they're like they're gonna get rotten, and you know they're gonna have film all over them. And what are you gonna do, uh, Colgate? <laughs> yeah, that's it's called like pain that, agitation it, relief. That's has always been. A, I, I I never uh, sometimes I wonder if people look at my work that way, but a lot of my work is about energy and how things bounce into each other and transfer mm-hmm. energy, and it seems that at the most fundamental level we're all just these entities trying to retain energy, but we're losing it all the time. And so we're doing things like building a house, mm-hmm. keeping you warm, buying food, all these things to retain energy. And so maybe that's the, in the in a way what this movie is about. Like both these families are struggling, uh, are fighting for the same. Yeah, resources. Marx would say something about like cap. You're trying to accumulate capital, and then and I think in this film also social capital comes through is evidenced through the idea of like go to good college, like all these little signals that you have status, right, and therefore you are worthy of even working yeah. or accumulating further capital. Um, so. But but the, the the marketing side of it is that uh, we're very far past survival, so uh, you're not in risk of being hungry. Even the poor family in this movie, they're not at risk of being hungry. Only the guy in That's the true. They open the, they the open the movie on guy. eating, like they're just eating for the first yeah. like twenty minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah, but so all the all the niceties that you're fighting for, that you know the word luxury, is basically the they don't have a need unless they're marketed to you. You wouldn't even be aware of them if nobody told you. Like if you lived in yeah. a void and no one told you that you needed a Mercedes. Or well, you are bringing up a good point that we've brought up on the podcast before, which is like, would the family have been better off? And I think they probably would say yes if they had never embarked 
to aspire at all. And you said earlier, like, the father's like, I don't need anything more than what I have. Like, I'm fine here in the basement. Let them, you know, like, I got my family. Yeah. I've got my food. Yeah, let's just have some chips. Let's just hang out together. Yeah, yeah, like, why would we want anything more than this? And then, the, but the son has yeah. this idea that something greater, you know, he can make something better of himself. And that's what leads to the complete undoing. And so, you know. I, I struggle with that sometimes. Like, sometimes I'm, I'm like, you know what? Things are really good, and uh, it's fine. And, and and then I get really suspicious of myself. It's like, oh, am I losing my drive? And I, I should be constantly hungry and wanting more. And I, I, a friend of mine was talking about that. It's it, it greed is not even uh, considered a bad thing. An absence of greed is considered a bad thing. Mm. Maybe in American culture more than others. But like, if you're not if you live in New York and you're not giving it your everything and do or die and kill or be killed and whatever. Yeah. No, but like, I think most people would summarize. I don't know if you feel that way. Like the first part of your life is all about the future. Maybe with your artistic ambition. The future, like when you're young, it's all about the future and ambition and accumulation. Like I could get all of this. Right. And as you get older, it's all about protection. It's like, I could lose everything. Right. And there's a line at a certain point. But, but, but let's say that as an, as an artist in the beginning, it's not about money. No. But I, I want exposure. I want to show my work. I want my peers to like me. Yeah. Uh, it's maybe step one. And now that you're uh, a bit older and uh, you're like, okay, I figured out the practical side of my life, but then the artistic side is is an open question. It, it's never done. It's it's not a project that you could say it's complete. No, that's true. But maybe you feel less hungry. You're not like, oh, I'm going to go to this opening at 2 a.m. It's raining, but I'll go anyway. I got it. I think, I don't know. I go through waves, right? Like one thing I've shifted to later in life is a lot more community work. So meeting with, you do this too, meeting with a lot of artists one-on-one, but I also meet with a lot of people in product and design one-on-one and business. Like I go on trips just to see individuals like friends or to have a new experience. So... I kind of, I'm seeking out more uh, specifically, like where I would have just like ran, run into something by accident. Um, I feel like I have to be more and more conscientious about like setting myself up for new or unusual experiences. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're at like uh, almost an hour and a half on what was uh, supposed to be a very simple <laughs> review of Parasite. I think that's probably what makes this the world's, uh, yeah, like either best or worst <laughs> podcasts for film reviews i don't think you're gonna get anything like this anywhere else <laughs> no <laughs> well let, let's just see we do a couple of movies to see, uh, see yeah please let us know uh how we're doing if this makes any sense at all <laughs> but uh i'm enjoying it i think we're having similar but different conversations at the same time than we would if we were just talking about business cards which was a famous episode well, I, I always thought that movie talk is a way of connecting with people you haven't met yet. And so because I moved to different countries at different points and you have to oh, meet yeah. new friends. And movies movies represent this shared memory. Like what are you, you watching? Have. And it, movies are mm-hmm. experiences. And then you might have grown up with a similar movie or you might have been hit by a similar movie at a certain time. And then it's almost like you... You know, with family, you can bring up memories and, oh, remember that weird summer vacation yeah. or whatever. And that creates a bond. And then with people you haven't met before, so movies have this thing more than, I don't know. It's a, it, 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 
for me, there was always a thing if I moved oh, somewhere you're right. and there, meet new people. There are two conversations, yeah. the weather and what are you watching right now, you know, kind of thing that are universal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. So yeah. there you go. Um, so thanks again. I don't know what we're going to do next episode. We normally do a field recording, or we used to, of that was like audiences sending us in audio. We don't have anything like that, though people are perfectly open to send us audio. I think we should be more specific. We'd be like audio of class struggle or something like that. But like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that wouldn't make sense because we're not going to talk about class struggle next episode, though probably we will. It's inevitable. Um yeah, maybe someone can can do an audio recording of the student loans. <laughs> but what would we play for this episode? I love the Nicolas Cage montage from last uh, episode. Yeah. Um, I think in maybe yeah, something from Snowpiercer though, just because like um, in like the soundtrack in Snowpiercer with the train on the rails grinding and uh, just like the fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that okay. sounds good. So we'll fade into that. Now. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Bye, Bye everyone. everybody. Thanks again. Bye. Thank you.